values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, thanks for being here. Joining me in studio right now from the Border Patrol, John Maudlin. He is the Chief Patrol Agent. Welcome, sir. I appreciate it. And also joining us in studio is Gary Restaino, Restaino who is the U.S. Attorney here in Arizona. I, I'm uh, a little nervous right now. Let me tell you the truth. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the both of you coming in. Um, obviously, being a border state, this is a big issue for everyone here. But can you describe the enormity of your mission in Border Patrol in the Tucson sector? Absolutely. So, uh, first and foremost, I think there's people always have some confusion about what the Border Patrol does versus other other organizations. So the Border Patrol's responsibility is to patrol anywhere there's not a port of entry. So say you're going down to Nogales to go down to Nogales, Sonora, you pass through the port of entry. That's a different organization that's there. That's um, the Office of Field Operations. But between the Nogales port and the next port, east or west, is where the Border Patrol is. So we're out there. And the job is to interdict anything that comes across the border that shouldn't be coming across the border, whether it's going north or south, but primarily what's coming north. And my area of responsibility goes from the the New Mexico state line to the Yuma County line. So it's about 262 linear miles, about 90,000 square miles within within Arizona. And in that mission, how many employees, uh, how many people do you have on at any one time? Yeah, so um, one time is, is difficult to gauge, but what I can tell you is that the Tucson sector is the largest sector in the Border Patrol in terms of personal so we have about 3,300 federal agents with, within uh, within my sector and then about 400 or so uh, support staff out there. All right. And so, and Mr. Estano, we, we talk often about crime and punishment, that it, you have to have a, a, a law enforcement a branch that makes the arrest, but you have to have prosecutors that are prosecuting the cases. Can you talk about your role in this and how you work with local agencies as well? Sure. So we prosecute the cases that the Tucson sector would bring us, as well as the Yuma sector, the entire border of Arizona. Uh, drug cases, alien smuggling cases, and other illegal reentry cases by the aliens. We, we can't prosecute alone um, as a way of trying to solve things, and so we do do a lot of collaborative efforts with state and county partners as well, and we really try hard to collaborate with Mexico because there's some good people in Mexico that want to help solve this problem. So either one of you can and jump in at first on this, but the issue of young, and I mean really young kids being used as, uh, as smugglers because because they're being recruited on social media. Can you address that and talk about what you're doing about it from the arrest standpoint and what you're doing now about it from the prosecution standpoint? Absolutely. Thanks. So um, what we're seeing, and this this trend really started about two years ago or so, is um, people that are not connected to the smuggling organizations, basically juveniles um, that are being recruited through social media apps. So things like like TikTok and um, Snapchat. What will happen is, and, some, and they're targeting, Targeted to a certain geographic area. So we see most of the targeting happening up here in Phoenix. And what happens is these kids are scrolling through their feeds and suddenly an ad pops up that says, you want to make $1,500 to $10,000 for a couple hours work, you know, hit me up. And, and so then the kid makes the contact and then he's given lats and longs where to go to to pick up a load of migrants. And uh, they're told that obviously it's safe and easy. How young? 
So um, generally speaking, these are generally, say, 15 to, to 17. We've seen them as young as 13 and 14. And, and what they're doing is they're taking their parents' cars, driving out to these areas, picking up loads of people. Um, and, of, of course, you have this, this incredibly dangerous mix of inexperienced drivers, overloaded vehicles. Uh, no one in the vehicles are wearing seatbelts because they're all trying to, to um, evade detection, so they're generally laying down. Um, and then probably the worst part of this is the the young smugglers now are being told by the same people they're in communication with on the uh, on the apps not to stop for law enforcement and even worse um, to drive recklessly as soon as law enforcement gets behind them so the end result of this are um, you know high speed pursuits um, citizens being killed um, by these these young inexperienced drivers um, you know some of the migrants being killed when vehicles wreck the, the the drivers themselves being killed and I think the other thing I would add before uh, the, the U.S. Attorney speaks is that we're also seeing an, an, an alarming increase in the number of firearms in these loads as well. So the, a lot of these kids are not only taking their parents' vehicle, but also taking their parents' handgun with them as well. So from the prosecution side, classically speaking, juveniles or minors don't get charged with crimes for first offenses or second offenses. Are there prosecutions now happening because of the severity of this? There are, um, particularly in dangerous circumstances and nearly everything is a dangerous circumstance here. Let me say, we tend to defer to the state on issues of juvenile delinquency. That's what the Juvenile Delinquency Act does and recommends, but this is an area of nearly exclusive federal jurisdiction, certainly federal importance. And so when the chief came to us a couple years ago and said, we're seeing this growing problem, we realized we needed to prosecute juveniles as well in order to send a deterrent message. We probably do, um, when you count the juveniles and the adult prosecutions, about 1,200 a year. So we really are trying to make a meaningful dent in that way. There's one other thing that we do, and that's on the back end, trying to make sure that we're getting up the chain on these alien smuggling organizations. It's not these young drivers that are the fault of the problem here. It's the ones that are arranging the transportation and the ones that are collecting the money. We've got some good prosecutions going against them as well. All right, so this may be an apples and oranges comparison, and I hope you can tell me if, if, if it is. But it, we, we know the case of a, something like a back page where they were allowed ads for prostitution and the people that were allowing those ads and creating those ads on their websites were held accountable for some of those things. Is there an element of accountability for the social media platforms that are allowing these kinds of ads on their platform? So I think it is a little bit apples and oranges, but we should talk about accountability. I don't think that there's easy criminal adjudication possibilities against social media companies for these actions, but there's certainly public pressure, which the victim communities have been doing in the fentanyl context, and there's opportunity for the administration to approach these companies to push for greater civil and administrative remedies to get them in the right direction. We need more controls on social media. And we all know that there are, you know, there's public opinion on things changes quite a bit. And so I think if the public knew about this complacency, let's say, if it is complacency, that they're allowing these things and not aggressively pursuing them on their platforms, maybe there would be changes made. Yeah, there's certainly opportunity for dialogue, Chief. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've spoke at length uh, about this to some of the people in the legislature at the at the federal level, and I know that there is 
sort of momentum to try to get get some laws in place. What I will tell you is the thing that makes this very challenging is these platforms are built for anonymity. So we do spend a lot of time with um, you know the Border Patrol and especially working with HSI to target these these recruiters and go after them and take them down. The challenge is, of course, we knock one down, another one pops up. Um, but we're trying to make an impact on both sides of it. I, I would say, too, and I think it's important, especially in the collaboration between the, the Tucson sector of the Border Patrol and the U.S. Attorney's Office, is that there's no sector on the entire southwest border that prosecutes more smuggling cases than we do. In fact, if you took the, the second and the third highest and combined those, it wouldn't reach what it is in Tucson. Now, a part of that is because we have more more traffic here, more of this sort of uh, smuggling, but another part of it is just the, the really great relationship. And then I would say, too, that, um, you know, to, to the U.S. Attorney's point, um, a lot of local jurisdictions help out a lot in this, too. You know, a, a law went into place, I believe it was the last four months of last year, that AR-2323, where um, local jurisdictions can prosecute for, for human trafficking as well. So we see a lot of that. Sort of the epicenter of this is in Cochise County, at least where, where the migrants are picked up. And Cochise County has very aggressively enforced that law and, and put quite a few prosecutions in place. All right, we're going to have one more segment with these gentlemen, and we're going to talk about Title 42 expiring, what the numbers are like at the border now as far as illegal crossings are, and what can be done about it. So we'll talk about all of these when we come back. Stick around. and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, joining me in studio is the uh, the Chief Patrol Agent, John Modlin from the U.S. Border Patrol, and Gary Restaino. He is, uh, Restaino, I'm sorry, Gary. Um, he is the U.S. Attorney here in Arizona. Let's talk a couple of things. You were just saying to me some statistics. It's not just about crossings, but your job also is rescues. Can you talk about crossers and rescues? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a little bit of context would be, so 2018, 19, and 20, the um, the Tucson sector saw about 60,000 apprehensions a year. So 60,000 apprehensions of people that were crossing the border illegally. Um, then in 2021, it jumped to 190,000. So three times increase in one year. And then last year jumped to 250,000. This year, we're about 20%, 18 to 20% higher than where we were last year. So really sort of unprecedented increase in, in flow across the across the border. Um, with that, well, what's interesting, too, is that within the Tucson sector, very different than a lot of other places. So a lot of places on the border, you've probably seen uh, news broadcasts that show people walking across, you know, knee-deep water to, to get into the United States. They're turning themselves in. Most of what Tucson sees is not people that are turning themselves in. Most of the, most of the traffic in the Tucson sector is people that are actively trying to avoid detection. So they're head-to-toe in camouflage, and they're doing everything they can to avoid being apprehended. They get very high up in the mountains, which, or even just in the flat parts uh, of the desert, which then causes oftentimes a need to be rescued. What, what is happening is these smuggling organizations tell people, hey, it's easy. Just go you know, a day, you'll be up to a road, and, and we'll get someone to pick you up. 
oftentimes it's four or five days. And, you know, soon it's going to be 120 degrees out there. They might carry one jug of water with them, which they'll they'll go through in the first day. So oftentimes then they need to be rescued, either because of that they're out of water, they're lost, or they're up in the mountains, they fall, and they have a compound fracture in the leg. Uh, so we, at that point, either have to hike agents up eight or 9,000 feet into the mountains to rescue them, or um, rope agents out of a Blackhawk. Get a Blackhawk, get it up against the side of the mountain, rope them out, uh, get the person in a litter, and then move them out. So incredibly dangerous for the air crew, dangerous for the migrant, dangerous for my agents. So, um, you know, th- these people that are getting into these situations, to give you an idea, uh, last seven days, we made 500 rescues in the Tucson sector. In seven days? In seven days. So 9,000 apprehensions, 500 rescues. So incredibly busy out there, both on the enforcement side and the humanitarian side. And I think that's the part that gets lost often is that is not the the lack of recognition for the humanitarian side. These agents risk their lives to save people that are in danger out there. What's interesting about that is here in Phoenix, they changed the laws in Phoenix where they actually shut down the hiking trails at the hottest parts of the days so it protects the first responders to not have to hike just the hiking trails. But you've got 500 rescues, and that number is going to go up as it gets warmer, correct? Yes, absolutely. We're going into the uh, the most dangerous part of the year. So let's talk about, uh, you say we're the, the numbers are up now. What is your expectation from both of you as far as apprehensions and prosecutions? What do you see happening after the expiration of Title 42? So uh, my belief when Title 42 goes away, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of estimates out there, but I think um, realistically we're probably looking at about a 20% increase in, in traffic, um, which obviously is very significant. In order to, uh, to prepare for that, we've done a, a tremendous amount of things. One, we're talking to all of our stakeholders, all the, uh, all the cities, all the, all the counties, everybody in all these other organizations, the non-governmental organizations, the charity-type organizations, and also flooding resources into the area. So we're bringing agents from, from other places to assist us here. We have virtual processing going on where agents on the northern border, maybe in a place that's not as busy, um, can basically almost, almost, like, uh, almost like these medical appointments started taking place during COVID, can serve somebody um, or at least process them virtually, being thousands of miles away of a process, the person that we have in custody here. We talked about um, staffing for Border Patrol and, and patrol, but as far as prosecution goes, do you have the staff that you need to prosecute the number of cases that you have now and the numbers that may go up when Title 42 expires? Sure, and so we, we have a robust crew of uh, Southwest Border Prosecutors, about five sections across the state, about 45 prosecutors. Um, we are always on the lookout for additional resources. We're getting some. Um, the Chief's shop is providing through through uh, Border P- Patrol nationally two additional prosecutors. We call them Special Assistant U.S. Attorneys. It's a wonderful thing because they come in with expertise from the agency, and it also lets the agency suggest some different priorities we might use to do some additional prosecutions to help. All right. Well, I appreciate the two of you coming in today. Um, these segments go so quickly, but uh, the information is invaluable, and I hope that you'll come back or even if we could do it on the phone to get an update later on in the year to see how the progress is going, and hopefully we start putting a dent in this and saving some lives. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having us. Glad, glad that you, had, you gave us a chance to illuminate this because there are certainly a lot of kids whose trajectory is changing rapidly. So uh, let me, I, I was going to end it there, but let me ask a question now that you said that. Is there something from either one of you that parents 
parents can and should be looking for to help their, you know, stop their children from getting involved in this? Is there something parents can be looking at? So uh, to me, I think, one, yeah, these people are getting paid a lot of money. So kids with money that's sort of unaccounted for, you know, buying things that that um, seem beyond their means. Certainly, um, if parents have apps on their phones where they can track where their kids are, if your kids are leaving Phoenix and going down to, to Douglas or Bisbee or, or somewhere down down by the border, and especially in Cochise County, those areas where they really have no business being down there, they don't have friends down there or anything, um, I would certainly start to look at that because this is going to impact the kids' lives significantly and probably impact the entire family. You can check the odometer, too. These are mm-hmm. long, dangerous trips they're taking. Well, gentlemen, again, thank you. Uh, valuable information. Uh, some of the numbers are absolutely staggering. We hope that this is a problem that's solved sooner rather than later. At least we put a big dent in it. So a big thank you to both of you for the work you do. We'll be back in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, listen, we are going to give you an opportunity to score the hottest tickets in town. We have Suns playoff tickets available. If you want to register to possibly win a pair of tickets, just text the word TICKET to 411923 and get registered. We will be listen, We will be uh, calling out names 7 a.m., 11 a.m., and 4 p.m. hours on Wednesday. And so you just text the word TICKET to 411923, and we might just call your name. Coming up in just a few minutes, we are going to have the Attorney General for the State of Arizona, Chris Mays, on with us. We are going to talk with Attorney General Mays about the issue of foreign companies or foreign countries coming into Arizona and getting permits to grow crops and use our water. Uh, It should be an interesting conversation on this topic as a couple of permits have been revoked and where we are going down this road and regulation and what's going to happen next. It should be a fascinating time to talk with the Attorney General. So that's going to happen in just a few moments. And a big thank you uh, to the Border Patrol and U.S. Attorney's Office for coming in and giving us some great information. We'll talk more about that at 1135. And if you missed the interview, you'll be able to hear a little bit of it then as we also talk with Taylor Tassler from our news department at KTAR News about the border visit. Um, Before we close it out in this segment, uh, this to me was a fascinating topic. Um, I am not someone that likes light rail as it's done here in the Valley. I'm not a fan. Um, I haven't been for a long time for a number of reasons that I think are valid, but I love public transportation. Um, having spent some time, when I say spent some time, more recently being in New York, I think that is a classic example of what good public transportation looks like. And in fairness, that city is a lot bigger and been around a lot longer. But when you have public transportation that allows everybody to get everywhere in a timely fashion, that's what it's supposed to look like. What we've done with light rail has turned people off to light rail um, in some ways because I don't think it's helped much. The people that like light rail, I mean, if I was an ASU student and I was commuting from the Tempe campus to the downtown Phoenix campus, or if I was somebody that used it once in a while to commute to an ASU football game or to commute into a a Diamondbacks game or to a concert or to a Suns game, then okay. But when you look at how it was originally designed and where it originally went and the problems it caused, light rail drives down the middle of busy streets. 
and it has caused traffic problems. It runs on the same streets at a slower pace than buses do. There are bus stops every quarter of a mile. There are light rail stops every half mile. Um, so I'm not a big fan of it. And the way it went, I don't think it was, a, it was you know, it went almost to nowhere. It, it, the, the first phase of it ended at 19th Avenue and Bethany Home Road. And I don't mean that that's nowhere in the sense that it's not a good place. I just mean it's not a destination. Downtown Phoenix is a destination. ASU's campus is a destination. But it just didn't seem like that was a good ending point. Now it goes all the way to the Metro Center Mall, which is closed. There is a proposal for a high-capacity transit through Maryvale to Loop 101 in the West Valley. Now... You have a what is largely working class neighborhoods in Maryvale, and you're going to say those are some of the people that can commute that way. It's going to allow people to get to where they're going to go. These are some of the routes that it should have gone in the first place. Imagine a light rail route instead of going in some of the areas where it is, but imagine a light rail route that runs east and west. Let's say it's along Camelback Road or Bethany Home Road or Glendale, and it runs west all the way out to where the Cardinal Stadium is and out to the 101. Doesn't that make more sense for the Westgate Entertainment District? Now we're going to have that huge resort that's out there for Cardinals games, concerts, and events that happen at the stadium. We also have the huge arena that used to be occupied by the Coyotes that has now got tons of events that are happening. Westgate is becoming more and more vibrant. When you're talking about high impact, where neighborhoods are going to be able to want it and use it, just to give you an idea of how, in my estimation, the way light rail has been used is kind of a failure, when after it ran in the original route, you know, it still runs that way. It runs through uh, downtown Phoenix and it runs west and then it goes north on Central and it goes to Camelback. Then it goes west to 19th Avenue and then it goes north and then it goes west again across the I-17 and it dead ends or it will dead end eventually at the Metro Center Mall. Um, When it went up Central... It had destroyed so many businesses that the mayor at the time, Phil Gordon, they came. there was a website and he was doing radio commercials and the city was spending big money saying to the people of Phoenix, shop the line because businesses were being destroyed. And everybody remembered that. And now that the next phase of light rail is going south down central into south Phoenix, there was a group of people called four lanes, no trains because they didn't want light rail going into south Phoenix because they saw the disaster it caused for businesses in the first phase. I'm in favor of public transportation. Elevate it, put it underground, make it something that's rideable. We don't have, you can't keep track of the people unless there's cops on the trains and we're understaffed for cops. There's a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons and ways you can improve public transportation, but you've got to get it right. It should be people that are not necessarily fans of light rail that design light rail because the people that design this, I don't think there's no facilities. There's no water. There's no not even keeping track of people. If you're paying for a ticket, it's just not the best that it should be coming up in a moment. The attorney general, Chris Mays, is going to join us to talk about revoked permits for water usage to foreign countries. It's all coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Water has been an issue in Arizona for a very long time, and a new story came out about Saudi companies growing crops of alfalfa and then shipping hay back to their country using a great deal of water here in Arizona. When Attorney General Chris Mays took the office recently, the permits were revoked. She joins us now. Um, uh, Welcome back to the show. 
Hi, Mike. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. This topic is such an interesting topic to me because water has become such an issue in the desert southwest, and we know it's been a growing issue for a long time. Can you first explain this decision on the revocation of these permits, what led to it, and, uh, and what happened? Well, so yeah, that we we um, decided to do to really uh, uh, drill down. No pun intended on on this issue. As soon as we uh, uh, got into office, and you know, I think there's what happened specifically here is that we discovered, my office discovered, that the state uh, Department of Water Resources that had granted two new well permits to the Saudis to a Saudi-owned company called. Fonda Monte in August. And, you know, they already have uh, wells in operation out in western Arizona and La Paz County. This is the same area. It's on state trust land. So it's on land owned by the state of Arizona, the people of Arizona. And I uh, immediately asked for a meeting with the director of the Department of Water Resources, and I told him I thought it was inappropriate. We had discovered discrepancies in the applications they had submitted, and I asked him to revoke uh, those permits, and that's what they they ultimately did. Mike, I mean, look, I think the vast majority of Arizonans, regardless of their political party, think it's outrageous that the state of Arizona is giving our water away for free to the Saudis so they can grow alfalfa for their cows in the Middle East. So was this about the amount of water that was being used? Because for the people that don't know, growing alfalfa crops, it's a very water-intensive product. But was it about the amount of water being used, or was it because it was being used by a foreign country to feed, feed cattle in another country? Well, I mean, it's certainly the amount of water is is insane. I mean, we're, we are talking about uh, 1,200 foot deep wells that pump out 3,000 gallons per minute. And to give you a sense of, of just how much that is, Mike, that is enough water in one day from one of those Saudi wells uh, for 30,000 Arizona residents. So one of those wells could serve 30,000 Arizona residents um, just based on the pumping that they would do per day. So, yeah, it's a lot of water. But, I, you know, in my mind, number one, they, they uh, it, it's just not in the public interest anymore for us to be, uh, it never was, for us to be giving our water away for free, certainly not to a Middle Eastern country um, that doesn't really wish us well. But, you know, really this is, this is about preserving Arizona's water supplies for Arizona. I mean, we are in an epic drought, Mike, as you mentioned at the top, and we just can't afford to be doing dumb things with our water anymore. You know, and so I, that that's really what was behind my, my decision and, and my motivation here, and we're going to keep working on this. The Saudis still have existing wells. I, I personally believe those existing wells should be also be canceled um, certainly when they come up for renewal next, next year. Is there an expense to the Saudis outside of the electricity that it takes to pump the water, are they paying the state of Arizona for the rights to do this? So here's this is one of the things that's so so egregious and, and awful about this, which is that, no, they are not paying the state of Arizona a dime for the water. Now, what they are paying for is a below market lease rate for the land. So, number one, they are paying 
not enough for the land when you compare it to when you make a, when you look at the comparables uh, in the area of La Paz County. And number two, they're not paying a dime for the water. And this is why I think these leases really violate the gift clause of the Arizona Constitution. The Constitution of our state says that, that, that the state of Arizona is not allowed to give away anything of value for free to a private entity. And so that's why I'm one of the reasons I'm pushing so hard to get these canceled. Arizona Attorney General Chris Mays is joining us. Um, so then what now happens to these wells and this land? Will it be used by American companies? What happens to that water? What happens next? Well, that, I mean, that remains to be decided. So we, we know we got these two new well permits um, canceled, revoked. Uh, so we know that that water will be preserved, hopefully, for the state of Arizona, for La Paz County. Um, you know, I've been out there now twice uh, to uh, Vicksburg and to Butler Valley in La Paz County. And these are areas where folks are now starting to see their own wells be dewatered by these deep uh, wa- deep water wells uh, by the Saudis and by others. Um, and so people are actually being harmed by this. Uh, wells are being dewatered. We know there's a lot of land subsidence. So we, we, we want to get these canceled. I think um, it remains to be seen. I think the folks in La Paz County would like the water to stay in the ground. And uh, certainly from a statewide perspective, we, we just need to be smarter about our water supplies and and preserve it for the state of Arizona for Arizonans going forward. As you say, the Saudi has uh, Saudis have other wells in in use in Arizona and La Paz County. Um, can you talk yeah. about the amount of water they're pulling out? What are the size of those wells? And uh, you talked about possibly the future of those. Do you think those will end up going away as well? Well, I you know that that is something I'm pushing for, and and uh, yes. Yeah. There, there are existing uh, Saudi-owned wells owned by this company called Fondamonte. Um, the, the wells vary in depth and, and in amount, uh, but a, a number of those wells, and, and um, there are a number of them. I don't have the number off the top of my head. In La Paz County, um, several of them are coming up for uh, potential renewal in 2024. Uh, one area, I think the rules are, are much later than that. So that's something that the state land department and I know the go- that Governor Hobbs is looking at uh, and that I'll be looking at over the next year or so. But certainly it's my view that especially these wells on state trust land where the private entities aren't being charged a dime for the water, they should be, uh, they should not be renewed, frankly. And at a minimum, they should be charged for the water coming out of that ground. Well, I, we appreciate the update on this issue. I know that this made uh, big news because when, when people heard about the enormous amount of water that was being used, uh, they, there were a lot of Arizonans that were concerned when heard about wells drying up. So we appreciate the information and I look forward to having you back in the studio. There's so much I'd love to go over with you, but this one is top of the list and thanks for updating everyone. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for focusing on it. We definitely have to focus on uh, groundwater supplies all throughout Arizona and protecting Arizona's water. All right. Talk to you soon.
Thanks, Mike. All right, that is Chris Mays. She is the Arizona Attorney General and the uh, the canceling of a couple of permits by Saudi-owned companies pulling water out of the ground to water alfalfa crops. Alfalfa is a crop that can be grown over and over again. It's a very water-intensive crop, and the belief is that you can't give the water away. You can't give away resources. Um, that is part of the, the, the gift clause here in the Arizona Constitution. So that's the thought process behind it. Will this lead to more regulation? Will this lead to just an enforcement of existing laws? That's what remains to be seen. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, we jump back on the economy. Fuel prices are down about five cents a gallon nationally, but it's not the case here in Arizona. We consider continue to see very, very high fuel prices. Why are the fuel prices so high here in the state of Arizona? And when can we expect some relief? We'll talk about both of those things next.